Hello, listeners. Welcome to Season 5 of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Every other Thursday, I chat with an author writing on the not-so-gritty end of the crime fiction spectrum. If you prefer your mystery without hardcore sex and violence, join us in the Cozy Corner. Welcome. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Joining me in the corner today is author Raquel V. Reyes to chat about her debut cozy, Mango, Mambo, and Murder, the first Caribbean kitchen mystery. Welcome, Raquel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. As I mentioned, Mango, Mambo, and Murder is your first published cozy mystery. So would you please tell us about your protagonist, Dr. Miriam Quinonia, sorry, Quinonia Smith, and what she's up to? Sure. Um, Miriam is a food anthropologist. Uh, and I say that, you know, the ink is just barely dr- dried on the degree. Um, when she uh, and her husband and a four-year-old uh, son decide to move to Miami. Now, both of them are from Miami, but they didn't meet when they were in Miami. So they've never lived in Miami together. And her husband is uh, from a very um, well-to-do background where she's definitely um, working class. And so anyway, they moved from New York to Miami so that they can have a little bit better chance of, you know, the house with the yard and the whole family life. And that's where we meet Miriam. She's dealing with, I've spent all of this time and effort to get this PhD and she's had intentions of being a professor. And, uh, you know, she has a, a Caribbean cookbook with um, uh, a lot of research about the um, African diaspora in it. And she has to put all of that on hold for the sake of her family. So that's where we find her in the opening scene, literally unpacking. Now, it's, speaking of food anthropology, that's a subject that probably a lot of us don't realize is a serious academic field. I mean, it's, uh, the study of foodways uh, is uh, something you find in both anthropology and history, because uh, food can tell a lot about the people who, um, who eat it. Uh, so would you please tell us a little bit about food anthropology for those of us who aren't familiar with it as a, as a field of study? Sure. Um, I wish I was a food anthropologist because I think that would be the coolest thing. But think about um, what um, Anthony Bourdain did in his No Reservation series, right? Where he goes to a place and then he talks about the food and also the culture surrounding the food. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of like the glitzy version of it. And uh, the academic version of it is you know, why do we eat these things? Where did they come from? How has this changed? Uh, what were the reasons for it? And so it's that intersection, you know, it's, um, it's food, it's food sustainability, it's culture, it's history, and it's also identity. And I think that's the part that Miriam likes to focus on. And what do your characters' food choices reveal about them? <laughs> Wow, I have not had that question. What do my characters' food chances reveal, choices reveal? Well, 
you know, there's a, a great um, uh, juxtaposition between Miriam, who, um, you know, of course, uh, she, she says she's not a celebrity chef, uh, which she isn't. She says she's a home cook, but she's a very good home cook, right? And so, um, you know, she's making all these meals from scratch that are are delicious and, you know, they fill the, the house with wonderful aromas. And then uh, you go to her mother-in-law's house for uh, a family dinner and all of it is kind of um, boxed food, you know? So here's the, uh, the, the hamburger helper, you know, the, the, you know, craft macaroni and cheese, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but it is a very different taste profile than what you're getting at Miriam's house. So that, that I have a little fun with those juxtapositions. And that does tell you a, a lot about those two characters just from that description without having to go into a lot of, of you know, expository uh, uh, telling them this is what this person's about. And that, so it, it, it does tell you a, a lot. Right, yes. <laughs> Another thing that um, some of us, myself included, probably didn't realize until we um, read your book and you made us think is the Caribbean is not just the Bahamas or the Virgin Islands, you know, beach resort that we see advertised on, on TV, that the, it's, it's a big region with a lot of different cultures, including Cuba. Um, your, your protagonist is, is Cuban American. Uh, so would you tell us a bit more about the, the Caribbean, um, you know, beyond what we see on the, the glossy travel brochures and, and, and what makes, what makes Cuba and its cuisine unique? Well, you know, I kind of look at it. So, um, Miami is considered the gateway to Latin America and to the Caribbean for various reasons. I mean, and, and especially Miami is really almost like an island nation unto itself. I mean, we're not very much like the rest of the state of Florida. <laughs> if you've ever been to Miami, <laughs> you would agree with that statement. Um, but uh, the Caribbean is very large. It's the Caribbean basin. And if you look at the map, you're going to see the uh, Greater Antilles and the Lesser Antilles. And it's almost like a ring, okay? And so you even have Caribbean parts of Mexico and um, Colombia. So anywhere that around those that they're, they're touching in the water, we have some shared similarities because those areas were um, colonized at about the same time. So they're either gonna be colonized by Spain, France, England, or all three. Um, some of them um, do have um, Dutch and um, some other, uh, there, there's several islands that have Dutch influences. Um, but the thing that kind of connects them all, other than um, the, the food that they naturally had on the islands or that they took from the water, there's some similarities in there just from the geographical area, you know? But the thing that they have is that enslaved Africans came over. So that's part of um, the triangle, right? And because of that, foods came over also. Ways of, prefer of preparing foods came over. Um, even, so one of the things is uh, bacalao, which is saltfish. So in Puerto Rico, in Cuba, in Dominican Republic, we call it um, bacalao. In uh, Jamaica, they call it saltfish. So this is um, North Atlantic cod um, that is, uh, you know, salt cured for preserving 
So after the, um, I'm sorry if I'm getting heavy on you, but I kind of like dig this stuff. So if you don't want to talk about No, this is fascinating. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm totally like, oh, wow. This is, like Because I've, I've heard of, I've had salt cod at a Jamaican restaurant without realizing its connection to the other region. So this, this is fascinating. So, so this is what happened. So the, um, the ships with enslaved Africans would come to uh, the Caribbean. Um, these plantations uh, were getting bigger. They had more mouths to feed. So that same ship would then go up the coast to Newfoundland and all those cold places up there. They would take this salt cod back down to the plantations and sell it to them. So these um, these ships were these these merchants were making uh, big bucks because you know one they they're they're selling human beings right then they're making another they're taking back with them either uh, you know salt I mean sugar rum cotton um, back up. They're filling their hulls with these um, saltfish, which was inexpensive at that time. But but then they're coming down here and, and selling it down into the plantations to feed all of these mini mouths. And so that whole, you know, chain of commerce um, affected the, the Caribbean in many ways. But yes. So you probably had um, saltfish in a key, which is the national dish of uh, Jamaica, right? Um, I'm not sure, honestly. It, it just it's, uh, the, the menu was in English because we weren't in Miami. It was in um, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, actually. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Um, so the menu wasn't was in English because it's. Uh, uh, well, I, I won't say it's a truly monolingual city. There are. Um, people who speak other languages, but uh, most things are only in English there. Mm. Well, I, I, if it, if it was, if it was a Jamaican restaurant, you probably had it with Aki, which is um, an interesting uh, fruit, but yeah. And we, and in, and in um, the, uh, there's a lot of other ways to prepare, but one of the yummiest ways <laughs> is, um, uh, is, is, a, is a fried version of it, which is delicious. And now even thinking about it, I'm going, wait, I already had lunch. <laughs> <laughs> but now Cuban, Cuban cuisine is not identical to Jamaican cuisine or Haitian cuisine or, or cuisines from the, the other areas. So how, how um, is Cuba uniquely Cuban as opposed to just general? We're heavily, heavily reliant on um, pork. Um, you'll see pork in many, many um, uh, recipes. But also you have to remember Cuba is one of the um, larger, if not the largest um, islands in the Caribbean. Um, and so it's quite a large island and they have distinct areas in it. So some areas um, are more beef oriented and some areas are more um, pork oriented. Um, but uh, one of the dishes that we talk about, um, well, I mean, let's talk about some of the similarities. There's this one uh, recipe that I talk about in the book called, it's called chicken fricasse um, uh, or pollo fricasse. Um, and that was influenced when the um, plantation owners left what was um, the Dominican Republic in Haiti. Um, there were 
quite a lot of uh, disputes going on there and so forth. And some of those, those people came over to Cuba and brought with them the, tech, the French techniques of making sauces and so forth. So the um, boiled um, fricasse is very much a French influence. Now, um, in Haiti, um, of course, which was a uh, French colony before um, they uh, fought for liberation and became the first um, uh, democracy and, and, and uh, free country in the area. Um, they, the, the ingredients are, there's some similarity to soup. So, so they, they do enjoy a lot of the hot pepper. So the scotch bonnet pepper that is used in Jamaica uh, is also used in Haiti, but in a different way you know, a slightly different way. Um, the scotch bonnet pepper that is used in Cuba, we would use it, we would, we would put it whole into our black beans while our black beans are cooking, but then we would take it out. As opposed to in uh, Jamaica and Haiti where you're gonna slice it thin and probably put in about four or five of them. <laughs> you know? um, the, uh, in, in Puerto Rico, they have um, gandoles, which is a pigeon pea, which in other islands, as, you know, Jamaica, um, they cook it differently. They cook it with rice with coconut, where as in Puerto Rico, they don't use the coconut milk in with the rice, but it's still that staple ingredient that because of uh, colonization and because of um, uh, the enslavement of Africans who were brought over to the Caribbean, there, there is that similarity. You know, there's certain items that traveled to all of the, uh, the islands because of that. Well, and that's fascinating because pigeon peas I've heard of because my family is from the southeastern U.S. and pigeon peas are something you eat there as well. So that's, that's fascinating all the, how food connects such vastly different places. It, it's kind of a, a unifying thread, which sort of shows you how people traveled over the years. Did you watch the Netflix documentary High on the Hog? I did chance? not. I, 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 will, I recommend it. I mean, it's very much focused on the South, uh, which I love because uh, Southern foodways are also a big fascination to me as well. But um, it's the same kind of principles of looking at the food in an anthropological way of where did it come from? Why did it come here? Why did it have meaning? And, um, you know, some of the things that are talked about in High on the Hog um, also uh, reflect back on things that happened in, in the Caribbean. So I recommend it if anybody's at all interested in uh, food anthropology, um, High on the Hog is a great documentary. And of course, the great fictional way to get an exposure to food anthropology is through reading your book. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I hope I introduced you about your book. to it. <laughs> yes. uh, but uh, getting back to some of the other aspects in your book, you, you mentioned that Miami is kind of its own universe within Florida. Um, and it's a very multilingual universe. Uh, so your, your protagonist is bilingual. Other characters in the book are bilingual. Uh, Miami is is polyglot the right word? It's just, you yes. probably find pretty much every language in Miami. Uh, now, 
So in your book, in addition to English, your characters do speak Spanish um, and Spanglish and other languages. So could you tell us a little about your, your decision to write a multilingual book? Sure, sure. And, you know, I don't want people to be afraid that they're going to pick it up and not be able to understand it. You have to trust that the author has thought about the reader, and I have. So everything is translated in context clues, if not, you know, directly translated. So, you know, no, no need to worry or be frightened about that. But, you know, I had to be authentic to the setting. You know, um, I've, uh, I'm a Miami girl. Uh, I've uh, lived here since I was five years old on and off. I mean, I've lived other places, but you know, this is what I, this is the place I consider home. And to be, uh, you know, respectful and true to Miami's nature, you know, we had to live in these languages and those languages had to be on the page. Um, you know, I throw in a few Creole words in there just because there's a large Haitian population here. Um, and uh, there's plenty of Spanish because my main character, because Miriam Quinones is uh, Cuban American, as is her best friend, uh, Alma Diaz. Um, there's another character in there. She's a uh, Russian Cuban. Uh, you know, we've got some Argentinians and some Colombians and um, all kinds of stuff in there. So I, I had to... I wanted the reader to have the true experience of being in Miami like a resident, you know, not just a tourist, you know, and um, so that's what I was striving for. Uh, you, you know that readers are smart and they'll figure it out, but did you get any pushback from anyone who maybe didn't have as much confidence in your readers as you did? No, I have to say that my uh, editor and publisher have been amazing. They were wonderful about the Spanish. Never once did they say, uh, you know, oh, we have to cut this down or so forth and so on. And um, specifically asked that it not be in italics because, you know, it's not something, quote unquote, foreign and weird, you know, <laughs> it's not something to be, to draw your attention to. It's just regular. It's, you know, come on, we got to normalize that. I mean, as, as many people that, uh, you know, live in port cities, like I do, a port city is always going to be uh, multilingual, you know? Right. So, I mean, the same is true for New York and, you know, and, and out in LA and New Orleans. I mean, you know, Absolutely. So, and, and in addition to, you know, just con presenting the multitude of, of languages spoken head on, uh, you also don't shy away from the issue of culture clash. You, know, you touched on it a little with the differences in, in food that the characters ate. Um, Miriam's culture is very different from her husband's and so like her mother-in-law won't let her forget that for a minute. Uh, Miriam also has to deal with a lot of uh, snubs and insults and assumptions that people make when they hear her last name. So how did you uh, decide to, to include um, that, that culture clash as, as one of the themes in your story? Well, you know, that's not far from I was, that's not far from my reality. Let me put it to you that way. Not, there, there are some lines in there that are almost direct quotes from things that I encountered myself. Um, and I think that is. Now, so the, the town 
in um, uh, Mango Bombo Murder is called uh, Coral Shores. And Miami is this huge, I think we're actually like the largest um, county by size um, in the U US. And so within Miami, there are all these little municipalities, all these little villages, all these little towns, right? So I just kind of made a town. I actually mixed um, three different little towns together and kind of mushed them together. Um, so it's not a unheard of town to be, um, you know, kind of have family, family, founding families. So the Smith family is one of the founding families of this little town of Coral Shores. And it is very much trapped in that privilege, and I will say white privilege, of this, this of the families that founded it. And when it was founded, um, it was a sundowner town. Now, there are plenty of these all through the South. And I know sometimes people in uh, readers and so forth in the North and in the West haven't heard this term. Um, but basically, it meant that if you were, you know, shade lighter than white, you were not supposed to be in the town limits after dark. So when the sun went down, you needed to get out. It was fine for you to come on in and clean houses and cut yards or cook or whatever it is. But at sundown, you needed to get out. Um, and um, so I found that, you know, even though laws were passed and, you know, civil rights changed that on paper, if it hasn't been talked about and internalized and then the sentiment hasn't changed. And so I kind of wanted to explore that a little bit, you know? So Miriam's mother-in-law is all fine with her son having married this Cuban-American and uh, that's all good on the surface. But then these little slights come in and these little, you know, there's all these little uh, deaths by a thousand nicks, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to explore because um, when I'm in Miami, you know, I'm in a majority because we're majority Spanish speaking, you know, we're majority brown and black, you know, it's a very different atmosphere, but I have lived in other places um, where that is not the case. And, um, you know, I wanted to explore that a little bit, especially since she and her husband had the luxury of not living near in-laws when they got married in their first years of their marriage. You know, so they haven't had to deal with those um, other opinions. You know, so, so that's one of the things that um, I found fun to have a little tension with. Another thing that that um, the, the concept of founding families uh, gets at is uh, issues of class, which is not the same as culture. And one of those assumptions people sometimes make is if you have a certain last name, you must belong to a certain social class, which is not true. <laughs> um, but it, it ties into culture. So did, did you see class issues and culture issues as, as separate or are they some kind of 
inextricably intertwined and, and you kind of address them as a, as a one, uh, sort of one. Um, I think that there's, there's a Venn diagram of them for sure. Um, but in this case, you know, Miriam is a working class. She um, was born and went to school in Hialeah, which is a real town within the city of, uh, I mean, within the Miami-Dade County. And um, it's a town that I actually love. I love Hialeah. Um, it, um, but it's very um, Spanish-speaking working class. And her parents um, have always been kind of like property managers. You know, you go into a little fourplex or so forth and, you know, they can live there uh, in exchange for taking care of the properties and so forth and so on. So, so Miriam grew up very much with hard work. She grew up with helping her mom and dad, you know, sweep and clean the patio to make sure things are right. Um, her, she has um, her Thea, uh, uh, her aunt um, and uncle had a little uh, three stool um, uh, cafeteria that she worked at in the summers, you know, she has had a very different experience than her husband and her husband's family. So when she moves into Coral uh, Shores, you know, she doesn't instantly use the Smith name, but people keep bringing it up to her. Oh, you're, you're Bobby's wife. And she's like, who the hell's Bobby? Oh yeah, Robert. <laughs> she calls Roberto, right? So, you know, she, she, she clues in and, you know, if you um, are a person um, from a culture other than the dominant majority culture, you know how to code switch. And so that's one of the things that she does, right? So she goes to the library, her little uh, four-year-old son has found a bunch of books. She wants to get a library card for him and they're kind of giving her a hard time. Well, do you live here? Like, what's your address? You know, she's just moved. She doesn't have her driver's license changed over. And then she uses the Smith name. And oh, anything you want, dear, you know, and that's kind of like how, you know, that's kind of like a, a mind trip for Miriam that she's also having to get, come to grips with. You know, she comes into this beautiful house that her in-laws have helped have co-signed on so they can get this, this home and it has quartz uh, countertops. She's never been, I mean, you know, the kitchen is bigger than their entire par- apartment in New York, you know. And um, so she talks and deals uh, some with that. I mean, I think she definitely has working class values and her husband and his family definitely have a different point of view. You know, he, things are a lot easier for them. They don't think too much about where the money has come from or if the money is gonna keep coming. <laughs> It's just assumed that it will. You know? <laughs> so now, so these these issues of 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 class and culture and prejudice—they're all important issues. I and mean, I'm sure you've all heard various news reports of people kind of losing their minds about things. Um, but your 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 book is still very much a cozy mystery. So how did you you balance examining those issues? And you don't just superficially touch on them. I mean, you truly incorporate them into your story and yet you keep it cozy. So how do you balance the, the well, you know, issues with the that, inventions? Yeah, 
cozies are changing and cozies have changed. You know, a cozy that was written in, um, let's say, the 1990s, like if you picked up a cozy from the 1990s uh, or even the early 2000s versus one that was written maybe in 2010, 2008, you know, 2012, they're very different. You know, and I think uh, that's the beauty of uh, the genre, you know, is that some of the um, things are going to be mainstays, but the rest of it is morphing and growing and so forth. And I think that the readership um, uh, is, there's a new group of readership coming in. Um, and, um, I mean, they may be millennials. I don't know. Uh, that's one of the things that has been floating around, you know. Um, and, and when that new readership comes in, you know, they are wanting maybe something a little bit, uh, maybe their expectations are different. Let me put it to you that way. Just because of the world that we live in now, right? Right. And especially if I've, by setting it in Miami, which is a real town, real place. Anybody can visit it. You know, um, not all of the places I mentioned, but, uh, you know, anything that's a landmark that I do mention is really here. You know, you could Google it and, you know, uh, Google Earth it and see it, right? So because of that, you know, I did have to make this legit. You know, I, I had to put these real things in here that we're dealing with, um, uh, along with the things about cozies that I love. I love that there's not, uh, you know, on the page, uh, violence and gore, you know, uh, you know, rare that you're going to find a cozy where there's violence towards a woman, right? right. Uh, you know, I don't want to read that. You're not going to find um, violence towards a child, you know? Um, you're, you know, th th there are certain things that when you come to a cozy, you're guaranteed to have, right? And those are the things that I wanted to keep, right? Because um, that's the read that I also enjoy. But I, I think you can have those things and also have a reality so that it's not too um, fantastical because, um I, you know, I don't, I don't write, um, you know, science fiction. I, I write things that happen in the real world. So I need to deal with those um, subjects, I think. And you can deal with those subjects with a light hand. Um, and I think opening up a conversation uh, with people, and I'm hoping that, you know, book clubs who read this book will maybe uh, begin to talk about some of these things because they've now seen them illustrated, you know, they may have a mother or an auntie that is like um, Miriam's mother-in-law, right? Right. And then, and sometimes not necessarily realizing how hurtful some of those things that people say are and and to be able to illustrate those things for others and open up those conversations um i love that and, and there's you know there's some other uh topics in here i mean there's uh we talk about some drug use i think um in one of them i i have a little scene where she's speaking to someone who um is one of the members from narcotics anonymous you know uh we've also mentioned um 
uh, eating disorder, uh, some things like that in there. And, and I think that it's important to have those in there. You, we don't have to go, uh, you know, super heavy or uh, in depth into them. But um, I think it adds a bit of, um, you know, well, this could have happened. This, this, this is plausible, you know? Right. Now, one, one of the conventions of the culinary cozy, this will be sub, sub genre. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> is, is recipes. And so you have, you've, you've kept that, you have recipes in your book um, and there are, there are recipes very much in, in keeping with your, your protagonist background. So who developed your recipes and how did you select the ones that you were going to include in the book? Well, I, I wish that someone else had had that job because that was the hardest part of writing the book is to write those recipes. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a home cook who's just like, uh, does not measure anything. You know, I just cook by feel because yeah. I, I learned at beside somebody who was cooking, they were cooking from a recipe. <laughs> but, Some of this and a pinch of that. Right. But you can't do that in a book. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could in a recipe, you know, they, you know, readers are going to want to um, give these recipes a try, which I encourage them to. I certainly hope they do. So yes, there were, there were several Sunday afternoons where I was like, oh, is this going to be a teaspoon or half a teaspoon or a tablespoon? You know, like, so that was interesting. Um, I, I didn't want to go super heavy on the recipes. I think there's maybe only four or five of them in there. And I'm actually now working on um, book two and I've got my little list of uh, recipes that I'm going to have. Um, you know, I wanted the recipes to be, um, you know, I had to consider, are people going to get these, be able to get these ingredients um, outside of Miami or outside of a metropolitan area that has a large, you know, uh, Caribbean um, population. And so I hope I chose some good ones that people can recreate. Yes. And one is for sangria. I, I don't, the, the first one actually is for sangria. Um, so perhaps if they start with that, they won't um, notice whether it's a teaspoon or a teaspoon and a half of meat. Yeah, they won't <laughs> worry at all. I, I had to put that one in there because that's kind of a little funny scene and a little, uh, a little, also the play with, um, uh, you know, uh, a status you know, is um, she, uh, she uses a, a, a inexpensive, uh, a very fruity white wine. Um, and then all of these fan, uh, founding family people are like, oh my goodness, this is so delicious. You know, at, at, you know, making it out that it's very exclusive and, and, and when really it's just um, some spruced up cheap white wine. <laughs> so I had to have some fun with that. And, and just think of the fun book, well, adult book clubs could have they can exactly have and, and uh, talk about uh, what this says about the uh, class and, and culture when it's really just a uh, uh, cheap white wine that tastes like uh, a gourmet a gourmet cocktail. Right, right, exactly. It, by a mixologist, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, switching gears a bit, uh, Mango Mambo and Murder is your first cozy, uh, but not your first published work. Uh, so you you. Uh, have several published short stories, uh, including one in in the Midnight Hour, which is an upcoming anthology of short mysteries that recently got a starred review. Was it by Publishers Weekly or Kirkus? Yes, it was. 
published weekly, which is awesome. Um, so how does, how does writing short fiction differ from writing a full-length mystery? I love short fiction, and I always have. I think probably since high school, um, I uh, was lucky. I was in um, English honors and, and AP kind of classes where they really encouraged a lot of um, creative writing. Um, and I, uh, I fell in love with the short story form there. Um, and I also love it because you can read it and, you know, have the satisfaction of an ending before bedtime, because I used to read at bedtime and, and I, I am no longer able to stay up all night and then get up the next morning and, you know, <laughs> go to work. So I really need to keep my reading down to an hour. In <laughs> so that's also one of the reasons I like short stories is because there's so much satisfaction in, in, in having the ending, you know, getting to that ending. But, um, no, it's kind of wild. So um, I uh, had a short story in the Malice Domestic um, anthology, which is uh, Murder Most Theatrical um, or Mystery Most Theatrical. I always get, I always get it wrong. Um, and that was right when the pandemic hit. So uh, Malice was canceled and we couldn't go um, support that, you know, because they would have had signings and some other stuff like that. Brilliant. So that was a little disappointing. Um, and then now I've like, uh, I've had um, the Midnight Hour one is coming out. And I also have a short story coming out in an anthology by Down and Out Books called Trouble No More, uh, which is um, based on uh, all of the songs are Almond Brother uh, band uh, titles. Oh. So that was a fun one. So that one, the, the Trouble No More comes out the day before Mango, uh, Mambo and Murder. So um, October 11th, that one comes out. And then October 12th, Mango, Mambo and Murder comes out. And then Midnight Hour comes out in November? September. November or September. I think they moved the date. I think we were actually may have been part of the, um, the chain of uh, unfortunate events. <laughs> No, no, no. Like they're having some supply chain stuff, I think, with like. Yeah, that was what I was calling an unfortunate event. The yeah. supply chain delays. Yeah. I think maybe that, because I think we had a September one, but now I think it is in November. I'm terrible. I, sh- I should have I should have gotten my notes before we got here. <laughs> I think I saw on Facebook that it was November 9th. 9th? I want to say. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's, it's November 9th. I think it's 11 9. Yeah. Every, everybody listening, check Facebook because the date is on Facebook. And I have it on my website too. So you can go um, to my website and, and, and I have uh, all the information there also. Now, now speaking of uh, promotional opportunities being canceled in person because of recent events that, well, I'll just say it, the pandemic. <laughs> uh, how, I mean, this, this is your, your debut year. So how, how have you had to sort of shift and adapt to being a, a, a debut author in a mostly virtual environment? Well, I think that, you know, um, being a debut author at the end, we hope, of the pandemic versus the beginning of the pandemic, I really feel for those people who've had their books come out um, in uh, late 2020 and early 2021. Um, You know, now I think that everyone has gotten so used to virtual. So many things are now hybrid 
And, um, you know, I'm actually, uh, so I'm having my book launch at um, Books and Books, which is our uh, independent bookseller down here in Miami. And um, very thankful for that. They very much, uh, everyone has to wear masks, et cetera, et cetera. And um, then I'm doing another book signing at another independent bookstore um, up a couple of uh, uh, towns from here, actually up in Broward, which is the next county ever. Uh, Murder on the Beach, which is a great bookstore. Um, and they've asked me to do a hybrid model. Uh, so they'll be streaming that. And then if people do feel comfortable coming in, um, you know, there's uh, limited seating uh, so that everybody can be, you know, socially distanced and so forth. So, I mean, it's interesting. There's definitely been, um, uh, you know, I've been doing some podcasts, yours and a couple of others and, and uh, writing uh, essays and doing some uh, guest blog posts. And, you know, I think the thing that is different is that um, I have not planned to take off for a week and go travel around and do bookstores, you know, um, which in Miami, it's hard for me to travel and go anywhere. I would probably have to fly someplace, <laughs> rent a car, and then decide to do a couple of places because just getting out of Florida is, you know, a six-hour ordeal. But anyway, um, but, you know, I think um, the Bowser Con was canceled. Uh, Malice Domestics was canceled. You know, some of these big um, fan conventions that I um, would have gone to um, as a presenter to get to sit on a panel or so forth, you know, that opportunity has been missed. But, you know, the, the community is so amazing. There have been so many readings that, uh, that other authors have just like, you know, said, hey, uh, I want to support my independent bookstore and I want to support my fellow writers and hey, let's get together and have a, a, a reading. And there's been quite a few events like that that has been you know, not, you know, we're all having to learn to live in a different way. And uh, just very thankful that the uh, writers have continued, the, the mystery writer community is so very supportive of one another and really come together to, uh, you know, find ways for us to get our work in front of readers. And and speaking of, of ways, uh, conventions, well, this is actually a conference, in addition to writing cozy mysteries and short stories. You also organize Sleuth Fest, which we're hoping will be in person uh, July, 2022. July, yeah, July, 2022. It'll be July 7th through 10th. And you were our faculty one year, which we're very uh, thankful was. for. Thank you for inviting me. No, it was great. It was great. Yes, um, uh, Sleuth Fest is a uh, writing craft uh, conference. And um, I'm a co-chair for it. And I have uh, been with the organization for many years and, you know, done other various volunteer roles. But um, yes, in July 2022, we hope to see uh, a lot of you. Um, and uh, it's, it's fun to have, um, you know, we did a online, a much smaller, very scaled down version of it online uh, for this year. And we did have to cancel 2020, but you know, so many others have had to deal with that too. But I think we're all really wanting to get back into um, seeing each other's faces and being in community and being in the same room together, right? Right. And and who who are some of the the guests and faculty that readers uh, will hopefully be able or to or aspiring authors will hopefully be able to see in person at Sleuth Fest 2020? 
For 2022, we have uh, Lori Rader Day. She will be our faculty, one of our faculty. We also have Trace, the fabulous Tracy Clark, be one of our faculty. Our guest of honor is Jeffrey Deaver. Um, and um, we have a forensic faculty coming on. And we haven't announced our uh, agent senators yet, but um, you know, look on our, um, actually our, we have our SleuthFest website, but uh, the SleuthFest Facebook page is usually where I go just to update with little details and so forth. So if people are, are really wanting to know the latest, go to the SleuthFest <laughs> Facebook page. So now between Cousy Mysteries, short stories, and conference planning, you've got a lot happening. So what's next for you and what's next for Miriam? Well, Miriam um, is um, having an exciting time. I'm just finishing up on uh, book two. We, uh, I've seen the preliminary sketch for the cover, which is always um, exciting. And then when you finally get to see it in color, you're like, oh, that's lovely. Right <laughs> now it's just a black and white sketch. <laughs> but um, yes, so so definitely those books are in the works. I've got a couple of little short stories uh, that... Um, are out there, you know, always check my email to see if they got accepted. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe uh, in the future, I have a, a, a private eye uh, character that I love that uh, is her manuscript is not finished. She's still a work in progress, but, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll get to that in the next year or two because I'd love to finish that. So, yeah. And, and can we have a hint about the title of, of the second Caribbean kitchen mystery? Okay, well, let's see. If I can get the order of it correct, it is Calypso, Corpses, and Cooking. Ooh, Calypso, course, Corpses, and Cooking. So Calypso, the style of music? Yes, exactly. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, I think Harry Belafonte would be one example of a absolutely absolutely so we can read it with harry belafonte playing in the background (laughs) sipping a sangria which sounds like a really fun way to spend a day yeah maybe i'll have to put a i'm trying to think i don't know that i have a lot of alcohol in book two um oh that's not true i will have uh there is a cocktail event there so maybe i'll have to figure out a cocktail to put in uh the back of the book those are always fun. That's a little cocktail recipe. Those, that will be one an interesting one to experiment with. <laughs> if you need any taste testers, let me know. You'll <laughs> help me. Excellent. Now, of course, readers are going to want to read Mango, Mambo, and Murder as soon as it's available. Definitely want to read it before they go to Sleuthfest to meet you in person and ask you to sign it. So where can they buy a copy? Well, uh, there is actually everywhere. Um, actually, uh, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it at your independent bookstore. You can buy it at this great website called uh, bookshop.org, which actually the money is from bookshop.org. If you do not have an independent bookseller in your community, uh, you can choose from outside your community and a percentage of the sales go to help independent bookstores. I love bookshop.org. I highly suggest it. But um, Books a Million and all of these other places, um, it will be everywhere October 12th. And there is an audio version in the works. I'm not sure if the release date will coincide with the print version, um, but I love my narrator. So I can't wait to hear it when it's finished. That does sound like it'll be fun. (laughs) 
And so I'm, and the audio, audio versions are usually available through Audible as well as Amazon. And yes, they're available through all the normal um, uh, sources. Yeah. And where can readers connect with you? You, you mentioned your website. What's your website again? Um, I am Latina Sleuths across social media. So if you type in latinasleuths.com, you will go to my website. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. Yeah, so I Latina's think even, I think I'm even on BookBub and Goodreads. Okay. But I'm, I'm always Latina Sleuths, so you All can right. find me that way. And uh, how about a Sleuthfest website in case someone wants to register Sleuth, for that? Sleuthfest.com. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you very much for uh, stopping by the corner to chat with me, Raquel. It's been great catching up. I, w- I wish it had been in person, but but not, you know, soon. Soon we soon. will meet at the conference bar, right? Yes. And we'll all be okay. And I will be ordering the cocktails from your, your Caribbean kitchen <laughs> series. I'll just bring a photocopy and hand it to the bartender and we'll go from that there. That would be exciting. Oh, that would kind of be a thrill. Let's plan <laughs> on that, shall we? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Raquel V. Reyes, author of Mango, Mambo, and Murder, the first Caribbean kitchen mystery. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.